Hey, this is Brandon Emma Richardson, and we are the pastors here at Slate Church based in Waterloo, Ontario, and this is our Sunday podcast. We really hope this message inspires you to lean into all that God has for you. If you would like to get connected with us, follow us on social media or go to slatechurch.com. And hey, it helps us a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. Join us for today's message. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Doing well? All right, good to see so many uh, smiling faces, fresh faces. Uh, it's been a, a couple of weeks since I've spoken here in the morning. I was at uh, City Church uh, two weeks ago. That is a church of um, Brent and Nicole Coulter, and Brent is on our board. And so he's actually going to be with, be with us in August. And then last week I was at Movement in Woodstock, and uh, now I'm here. And uh, this is my favorite place to be, and I'm glad to be here. Steve, I am. Not forced, they're not holding anything against me to say that. I uh, love being here. So, oh man, I feel like I rushed up here. We go on vacation immediately following the 1015. And uh, if you guys know what we do for vacation, we have a uh, tow uh, trailer behind us and we go to different uh, provincial parks and whatnot. And I finally got, thanks to the Bustards, uh, Josh Bustard up there. We bought our truck off of the Bustards here at Slate. But, um, I literally pulled into the parking lot and then like walked in to, to speak because I finally got the t- truck uh, hitched up. You guys doing okay? <laughs> How we doing, Steve? There we go. I'm doing great. Doing really good. And um, I'm picking up week two of uh, our Out of Pocket series. If you haven't been here for our Out of Pocket series, essentially our Out of Pocket series, I had to ask a whole bunch of people, like, what does Out of Pocket actually mean? Because um, I was like, what, what are we doing for this series? And essentially what it means is just those things in the Bible that make us go, what, what is that? Like, what, what exactly is going on in the Bible there? And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, the way I set kind of the... Uh, message series for the whole year or actually I get involved with the messages is I think certain themes and things that we want to talk about and so for me um, honestly I think part of our evangelism struggle um, both in our church but also just in the west is that we feel like we're not equipped enough with what we know about scripture and there's that scripture that verse in the Bible that says have an answer for anyone who asks or have an answer ready for anyone who asks uh, when it comes to them questioning your faith and when it comes to this, I think for a lot of us, we're, we're really kind of nervous to share our faith because we don't have those answers or because there are things that have gone unanswered. And so that's what this series is about. Now, in saying that, I kind of like come up with a theme and then I pass it off to Nate and, um, and uh, Emma. And they, uh, they kind of distribute the, the topics for the series. And so I opened up uh, last week when I was preparing for last week's message. I spoke this in the evening service. I opened up the sheet about what I was going to speak on, and this is the title that I was given. So it's not my title, um, but this is what I'm speaking on this morning. Uh, and it, it it's a little, like, melodramatic. It feels a little millennial. Um, this is the title of today's message if you're taking notes. Why do all of the heroes in the Bible suck? I'm like, I don't know if they all suck. Like, I think we can probably find like Jesus was a hero in the Bible I don't think he sucked um so this is what I was given but I think what it capital like like kind of hints on is like there's a lot of people that read the Bible or they know enough about the Bible that they go like the people that you believe in 
uh, kind of suck. And that's why I don't want to read the Bible. That's why I don't want to adhere to your faith. That's why I don't really care about Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So why don't we pray and then we can jump into it. And um, Yeah, let's pray and we'll jump into it. Jesus, thank you for this morning. And uh, we thank you for the, the sunshine that we've been having. God, we pray for rain, um, just even for the farmers and um, and for the retired community in my, in my neighborhood that wants their grass to be green. God, I just pray that you would um, bless us this morning with um, just some deep insights into your word. And God, I pray that you would be glorified. God, I pray that we'd walk out of this place and just think, wow, God is good, and just have an even greater appreciation for who you are and, and gratitude deep within our souls. God, thank you for your word, and I thank you for this time that we get to gather here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, if I didn't introduce myself and you're newer to Slate, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's uh, just so great to have you. Can we welcome anybody who's here for the first time? And That's great. Okay, why do all of the heroes in the Bible suck? Um, well, first, first off, uh, I don't think they do. Uh, that's, that's where we're going to start. But let's talk about those kind of interesting things within Scripture that are kind of hard to get over. Like, let's talk about how David um, impregnated a woman in his kingdom and then tried to offer her husband, which he eventually succeeded in, just so that he could um, justify the fact that he impregnated somebody who wasn't his wife. Like, like that's something that we have to... And this is, this is the king that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Okay? Um, before we go canceling pastors for, like, little things that they've done or, like, mistreatment of people, which is always going to happen, unfortunately... Um, let's let's remind ourselves that this is like the guy that everybody's like he was the good king like he's the king that like everybody respects okay um, or let's try another one let's uh, let's choose Noah uh, anybody uh, know the story of Noah right Noah's Ark and all of a sudden we have this like interesting story where we only tell our children part of the story because the whole thing would kind of like freak them out because the whole story is essentially that God thinks everybody on earth is so evil that he has to save a remnant in order for Jesus to come. And in order for that for Jesus to come and that remnant to be saved, he's got to save a family. So he picks the most righteous family that he can find on earth. Great. And uh, that family happens to be Noah. Noah and his sons and their wives. And uh, so he, he saves these people. He saves Noah and his wife. And, uh, you know, we don't tell the whole story to our kids because the story would actually go like, all the animals get on the boat, they close up the boat, and all of a sudden the water begins to rise, and people be like screaming and shouting and clawing at this boat, like, please let us in, as basically the whole world is drowning around them, which is just a little detail that we leave out of our kids' stories. And we have to like ask ourselves the question, like, is God good in the midst of all of that? And so we're going to jump into that in just a moment. But this is the guy that God's like, okay, this guy is the guy that I'm going to save. I'm going to leave. His family is going to be a remnant. And out of that remnant, we're going to have, I'm, I'm going to bring about Jesus eventually, okay, into the, into the human story. And so the first thing that happens when uh, finally the boat settles is God puts a rainbow in the sky to, to indicate that his, uh, his promises, or at least there was a rainbow in the sky at that time, to indicate that his promise that he will never flood the earth again or destroy all of humanity like that again. And so to celebrate, I mean, Noah uh, decides to plant a vineyard. He's like, hey, let's celebrate. Plants a vineyard, and the very first act that Noah does before or after God does all of this great thing and saves his family out of all of the families is he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and walks around naked, falls asleep, and his kids find him. 
Want to do another one? How about Abraham? Abraham was a good guy, right? He's, he's one of these Bible characters that don't suck. Abraham is the family that God chose after Noah to be the vehicle in which Jesus would come into the earth. Like he's going to use Abraham's family to be a remnant. We all love Abraham, right? Father Abraham and many sons. Do you know the song? Father Abraham and many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And they just took their servant, impregnated her, and tried to steal the baby. Like, isn't there like an action, like you like do this too or something? But like this, this is like part of the story, isn't it? That like Abraham looks and he's like, well, Sarah's not giving me a baby, and so why don't we just take your servant, your slave, we'll like get her pregnant, we'll like have that child as our own, and then like, like everything will be taken care of and we can answer God's promise in our own strength. The problem is, is that not only did it create a rift in their family, it created, created a rift in like what we're still dealing with today. The rift between Ishmael and Isaac still plays itself out in the Middle East today. So why do all the heroes in the Bible suck? Um, again, I don't, I don't know if, if they suck. I, I think that we need to take a different look at what the Bible's trying to do in communicating through these authors. So, um, again, I mentioned that I spoke this uh, message in the PM service last week, and Nate and I hadn't, like, combined on our messages. And uh, apparently Nate's like, yeah, we spoke, like, 50% of the same content. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's too bad. Um, so we both had to change our messages a little bit for today. Here's, here's what I want to focus on today. Is I want to focus on... Um, three ways in which the Bible uses these sorts of narratives to not only encourage us, but to speak about God's goodness. I'm going to kind of move through these, and then what I would like to do is spend some time, because when I'm speaking, we don't always have time to worship at the end of our services. Um, I just decided not to fill in 50%, but I'll give you just a little bit more about how we should be reading our Bibles, how we should be reading the scriptures, how we should be looking for encouragement in our lives and God's goodness, and then we're going to actually celebrate God's goodness by worshiping and ascribing to him his worth. Here's the thing, is that if you look at the Bible, what we have is we have a bunch of different books. They're all different genres, and it's important to know the genres. This might be a little bit of a recap from Nate's message last week. But we have to know the genre that we're reading, because if we don't know the genre we're reading, we might like take certain parts and apply them to our lives or try to apply them to other people's lives. And we might be applying something that shouldn't be applied. Let's take the book of Revelation, for instance. Like how many, uh, how many people are using the book of Revelation as a roadmap for how to like survive the end times? It's like a, another way that we could describe Revelation is some people are like, like they get to Revelation, and they're like, this is a, a survival book for the, for the apocalypse. And they read it that way. And the problem with that is that Revelation is, is um, a type of literature that was written during this time. It's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature during the time that it was being written was written by many different authors in, or, in order to encourage those who were oppressed. And so people would write apocalyptic literature to say, like, if you're oppressed, read this, be encouraged. And uh, in, in the sake of the Bible, be encouraged that God is still in control. Or take the book of Job. Like, I, I mean, there's been pastors that have taken the book of Job and they're like, speaking out of some of the verses of the of Job's friends. They're like, hey, like this is how we should be like encouraging one another. And yet, well, when we actually read the book of Job, what we actually see is in the book of Job, the whole point is to point out like God is still good, God is still in control, and that like friends suck because the friends aren't giving any good information to Job. 
And so we have to know when we're reading this that, like, the Bible's not telling us to, like, be like Job's friends. In fact, the whole purpose of Job is, like, don't be like Job's friends. Sit with people. Be with people. Be good neighbors and loving to those around us. And so that's, um, that's what, what Job communicates. Within the Bible, what we have is um, a bunch of different genres. And one of the genres that dominate the entirety of Scripture is what we call narrative. Forty percent of the Bible is narrative. In order to make up a good narrative or in order to make up a good story, um, you have to have three different things. Do you guys know what those three things are? English teachers, any, any type of teachers? Uh, you don't have to yell it out because you're like, is this rhetorical? Is he going to tell us? Uh, I'll tell you. First off, you have to have character. Character is so important when you're reading scripture because um, what we have to realize is that the biblical authors were, were not just like, not just only recording things that actually happened, but they're, they're good writers. Like if we stack up the biblical writing to other writing during this time, it's good writing. Like it's, this is objective outside of Christianity. You have secularists, humanists, uh, um, um, academics that, that compare scripture and the writing of scripture to other types of writing. It is written really well. The reason that character is so important and the reason that the Bible uses narrative so much is because story is used in order to find ourselves in the story. So when we read stories like Abraham and Noah and David, and these guys are messing up, the point of that is for us to be able to see ourselves in those characters and to be able to analyze ourselves without doing the things that those characters have done. Like character is extremely important in the midst of story. But what we see is that the Bible writers, as they're going through the character and characters that, that are within scripture and the narrative that we find in scripture, do we have a different mic? This one is just like really, uh, unless it's just me. It's not just me. I feel like every like third sentence is just like, devil's trying to get us not to hear something this morning, church. It's, uh, there's something really powerful coming at the end of this. All right. Thank you, Victoria. Go. There we go. And this one makes my voice sound deeper. That's amazing. Yeah, just turn up the bass on this one and we'll be great. Um, so one of the things that we have to understand is that when we come across these stories and we're like, man, like are the Bible characters just like bad people? What we have to realize is that within narrative, one of the things that the Bible's not trying to do is to tell us that people are doing things that are wrong and to tell us that the Bible characters are doing things that are, are right. So the writers of these narratives are not giving a moral kind of uh, uh, inventory of what these people are doing, whether it's right or wrong. So when we're reading narrative, it's not trying to tell us like, hey, when David like slept with Bathsheba, like that's a good thing to do. I think we all read it and we're all like, yeah, that's, that's probably a bad thing. Of course, we have a prophet that comes and tells him he did a bad thing. But for a lot of us, like when we read these things, we have to understand that like the Bible is not indicating what we should do. Which is why, like, Christians that have grown up in context where people will be like, you know, I have such a, like, a, a David spirit. Like, I'm like a, I'm like a David inside. Like, like when, I, when I, like, live out my life, like, I'm a David type of personality. You're like, well, that's great. Like, like, the king part, the, like, ruling well part, the part of it being, like, peaceful as a shepherd and, like, beating up on, 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 on bears and lions. Like, is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about, like, 
sleeping with people that aren't your spouse and like killing people that are like, like what part of David's spirit are you? Because like you can't just pick and choose if you're going to be like a David type of character. But what we read within scripture is that the Bible just kind of lays it all out there and like this is people's lives. And the great thing about this is that it, it, we can relate to the Bible because they include all of this stuff in it. Um, my kids are always asking for story when, when, when they go to sleep. And it's just a tactic. I don't even think they like my stories. They just know that if they can ask for a story, dad will talk and uh, we can stay up longer. And so they'll, just, they'll say anything to like get, get me to stay in their bedroom a little bit longer. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are laughing because they deal with this as well. And so a little while ago, I invented this character called Abigail Mouse. And Abigail Mouse is essentially Kenzie in mouse form. And I'm just like telling stories about uh, Abigail Mouse and her brother Leo um, and her uh, sister Lair. And uh, it took a little while. Kenzie was like, is, it, is this me? And I'm like, no. Like, and I'm like teaching her not to do things through Abigail Mouse. And the story goes something like this. Like Abigail Mouse is walking along. She's really hungry. She needs to find something to eat. And she finds a piece of cheese. And all of a sudden, this piece of cheese she's carrying around with her, and she puts it in a wagon, and she puts it in a carriage, and she puts it in a lockbox. And eventually, the cheese goes missing. And they all go, oh, no. And all of a sudden, Abigail Mouse doesn't know what to do, so she goes and gets her Abigail Mouse's parents, and they come along, and they find the cheese. And everybody celebrates and has a great picnic lunch. And they're like, Dad, that, that was amazing. Can you tell us another one? And I'm like, Sure, you know, and I like get drawn into their tricks because I'm like, I think they think that I'm telling a good story, but it's really just, just want to stay up later. And I think you're all like, you, you all understand the point, which is like kids stories are like that. It's like this animal had a block. They lost their block. They found their block. They built a house with the block. And kids are like, oh, my gosh. Dad, read it again. <laughs> The plot line in this story is unbelievable. We need to create a Shakespearean play out of this animal and their block. The problem is, is that what passes for a children's story doesn't pass for adult stories. I mean, that's a boring, if the Bible was just like, here's David. David was like poor guy and uh, neglected. Uh, comes, a guy comes by, says, you're going to be king. He's a little bit insecure, but says, okay, and rules the kingdom into uh, its glorious future, the end. We'd be like, hey, that, that's great for a Disney movie. But like, I don't learn anything about my life by reading that story about David. But what we do learn about David's story when we read it is, wait a second, did God still love David in the midst of his messiness? Did, did God still use David in the midst of him working out his character flaws in a deeply, what we, we could call barbaric society. It, it, wait, 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 wait. Did God still walk alongside David and not give up on him? Like, like that's something all of a sudden that I can find myself in. And the biblical writers are not offering a, 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 um, a, a ledger on what is good and bad in Noah's life and Abraham's life and David's life because what they want you to see is the consequences of their action playing out over time. 
And so this is where we deduce things. Like people come to scripture and be like, well, like the Bible is inconsistent in its ethic on sexuality. And we go, no, it's not. Just because it doesn't call polygamy out as sin, what we see is that every single time polygamy works itself out within scripture, the natural consequences are families are messed up, torn apart, and it actually results in a lot of strife for years and decades, and in our case, centuries and millennia to come. And so what we see is the biblical writers are not trying to give us a narrative that 40% of scripture, like what is right, what is wrong. They're trying to give us a picture of what life looks like both by following God and by not following God. And we're meant to put the, together the pieces as we analyze our own lives to decide the way that we should live. So this is something that we have to point out in characters that Bible writers keep characters simple and neat and categorize them as good or bad because they want to draw us into their story. And the writers generally highlight the failures and the successes of people as a way to indicate how their behavior actually impacted the rest of their lives. Now, character is not the only thing that we focus on within narrative. The second thing that we focus on is in setting. Now, setting is a helpful tool by biblical writers because they get to bring up a setting in order to give us some level of emotion as we're reading the Bible. Now, now, keep in mind that they're not like distorting story in order to make a point, but they include setting in order to emphasize a point. Um, think about this. Like if I started a story and I said in a courtroom there was a, a, a man and a woman, immediately courtroom brings certain feelings into our lives. We start thinking like, oh, something serious is happening here. We might even picture like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and we go like, wow, this is interesting. Like I might as well waste a month of my life following this. And so like... Courtrooms bring something into our lives and we start to like feel a certain way about them. Well, if we trek through the Bible and we read enough of the Bible, we start to learn that there are certain settings that should do certain things to us when they're brought up. For instance, Egypt. Egypt is a place that is often associated with famine and it's also associated with like exile and, 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 and oppression and that sort of thing. And so as we read all throughout the Old Testament, we have all these examples of like Egypt just being like terrible and filled with famine and oppressing everybody. When we read that and we jump into the New Testament, we see Jesus fleeing from Jerusalem in order to go to Egypt. What we should be seeing and hearing in that passage is we should be going, wait, something is happening. There's an oppressor happening in this story. There's, there's, uh, there's some level of a famine or there's something missing. And there's, there's a need for God's deliverance. And that's what we should be feeling as we see Egypt pop up within the story. And of course, this is what we see. We see Herod oppressing the people because he wants to kill Jesus. He kills every baby two and under. And the Bible points out, like, this is a terrible thing. And again, this is where we start to get the ethic around abortion. As Christians, we start to go, wow, the Bible really elevates children all throughout the scriptures. And so we see that. And then we also see, like, wait, they're waiting for a deliverance. And you see all of a sudden um, uh, 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 Jesus and, and Joseph and Mary, and they're waiting for God to, to, to send them into this thing. And so when we see setting pop up within scripture, we have to pay attention because what it's trying to do is to point us to, to, to a certain lesson that the Bible is trying to speak. Now, less, setting is not only um, place, it can also be time. For instance, the number of 40 almost always indicates some level of, of, of wandering within scripture. We got the 40 years in the desert uh, that the Israelites had to wander. We got 40 uh, days that Jesus wandered again in the desert. Anytime you're seeing this number, it's meant to evoke from us, wait, something is happening. So they're, they're searching for, for something. And, and, and what we often see time and time again is that what they're ultimately searching for is God himself. 
Now, I breeze over setting because we kind of get that one. So we have character setting, and the final thing we have is plot. And this is where I want to bring this home for us as we not only read the Bible, but something that is quite encouraging to us. Obviously, the plot is designed in such a way within Scripture to teach us about who God is and to encourage us in our own lives. And if we pay attention to the patterns within Scripture, what we find is that God is really good. People do suck, and yet God continues to love us. So let's take a pattern that we see within plot. And plot is essentially the way in which readers will take character and setting and the way in which they organize the events within those two things is where we get the plot. Now, as we follow plot patterns within scripture, we see that God is actually trying to teach us something new and something fresh and something that will encourage us. And so I'll take two examples. And then um, I just want to read a simple scripture that, um, that, that should encourage us. Um, in, in just our own lives and as we walk out of this place. So one of the, um, the, the plot patterns that we see within Scripture is this idea of chaotic waters um, followed by a new world. Now what I mean by this is what we see in the Genesis story is we see the chaotic nature of the world being brought into order by God and essentially being, creating a new world. We see him separating the waters, right? And he creates this new world. Chaotic waters, we see that in the story of Noah, where all of a sudden there is this, there is this, um, this, this flood that happens. It's chaotic. It, it destroys a lot of things. But on the other side of it, there's this new covenant, this new world with God. Through the Exodus story, we see that the Israelites exit Egypt, and they walk through the, 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 dry, uh, the, sorry, the Red Sea on dry land. These chaotic waters are split. And all of a sudden, the, these people walk through on dry land into a new world in, in, full of new possibilities and new hope with God on their side. Joshua and the Israelites once again mimic this idea of the chaotic waters. We see in the uh, book of Joshua that the Jordan River was at flood stage when they were about to cross over into the promised land. And as God stops the waters up in a heap, they walk over into a promised land, a new land, a new story full of hope and, and, and excitement about what God's going to do. We see Isaiah prophesying about the, the chaotic waters in the new world over and over again in the book of Isaiah, but it all culminates with Jesus as he starts his ministry. And what does he do? He goes back to the, the Jordan River. And I've always wondered, like, why, why did Jesus actually have to be baptized? It's got to be more than just an example for us to follow. And certainly what we see is that the Bible writers are actually trying to, trying to get us to realize that, that Jesus is stepping into the chaotic world of the people around him and providing a new world for those that will follow him. But in this case, what we see is unlike the Genesis story, Noah, the Exodus, the Israelites walking into the promised land, Isaiah prophesying, which would be about Jesus. What we see in the story of Jesus is that this isn't a hope that wanes or fails. This is a hope that is everlasting. Within the story of Jesus calming these chaotic waters, we don't just get a limited hope or a nearsighted future. We get an unlimited hope and a sight into the future that allows us to understand that this world is not all that there is, and Jesus is able to save us. And so the whole Bible is using character and plot and, and setting in order to drive these points home to say, hey, who you've been looking for in the, the, the whole scripture is surrounding and revolving around this Jesus character that is to point out that, yes, you're bad, but he's even better than your badness. That the whole Bible is using all of these tools in order to point ourselves on Jesus to say, Jesus is the one that you've been searching for. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one that can save you in your life. Okay, final design pattern. 
we see plot patterns, sorry, within Scripture. There's this interesting thing because when we ask ourselves, why do all the heroes in the Bible suck? What we're getting at is these moments in their story where, the, where desire overcomes them and they succumb to the temptation that's in front of them. And so let's look at how the Bible actually uses the stories, these kind of crappy stories about these biblical heroes, to point us to the fact that they aren't the heroes we're meant to look to, but they're all pointing towards the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so what you see over and over again in, in the pattern of Scripture is this idea of seeing or this, de, this idea of desire and then people taking in the midst of temptation. Here we have Adam and Eve. We see Eve and, and, and Adam see that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is good and desirable for knowledge. And so what do they do? They take that in order to get some outcome from that. Now, they got the bad end of the stick. We can all agree on that. And the fact that right now we continue to live in the effects of that decision that they made. They had a desire. They decided to take it. And it didn't provide the outcome that they expected. We see Abraham and Sarah. They wanted the desired outcome of having generations that would serve God. And so what they did is they saw an opportunity with Sarah's servant, and they said, hey, well, let's take that and see God's promises come about. But what we see is generations of turmoil on the other side of their seeing and their taking, their desire, and their taking into their own hands. Or how about Aaron at the foot of the mountain as Moses goes up? It says that the people began to see that, that, that Moses had been gone for a long time. And so they decided to take all of the gold from the people around them and fashion it into a calf because they decided, well, listen, we've got to have some God to lead us into the future. And the desired outcome was that they would have direction and, and, and confirmation of some being or deity that would take care of them. And after they saw and they took, what they got was, again, generations of of, of dysfunction because of their desire and temptation and what they took in the midst of that. We see this with the Israelites. All of a sudden they say, listen, God's not leading us in the way that we want him to lead us. And so what they do is they go, hey, we see that it would be good to have a king. And so they take Saul, put him into power. The desired outcome is that they would have direction and, and uh, firmness in their life and a foundation in order to grow their nation. But what we see is once again that there's dysfunction and chaos in the wake of their seeing and they're taking. David and Bathsheba. David, out of his desire and temptation, takes Bathsheba into his house in order to have some level of pleasure and to remove himself from the chaos of the world that was in front of him at the time and the battles that they were fighting. And what it left in its wake was dysfunction in the family line of David for years and decades to come. And here's the thing is that we can look at all of these stories and say, why do all of the biblical heroes suck? Or we can realize the point that the Bible is trying to make is that, yes, they do suck. And that's why Jesus was meant to come. Yes, actually, like, you're right. Like, like people and humanity have, have struggled with sin time and time again. And, and humanity continues to wrestle with what it looks like to live in a broken world. And yet that is why Jesus had to come. What we see is that Jesus' story retold takes the same patterns as these stories, and yet in his moment of greatest temptation, he doesn't succumb to the seeing and the taking, but he actually submits himself to the will of the Father. We remember Jesus in the garden, and he's about to be killed for, for nothing. Like, he, he didn't do anything. For being sinless and spotless, he's about to be killed. And what does Jesus say in his greatest moment of temptation? Father, please take this cup from me. He sees what's in front of him, and he knows it's going to be difficult. 
For the joy set before him, he sees joy, but he also sees the, te- the, the, the not the temptation, but the the um, the the. the the treacherousness and, and the torture that he's going to go through. He sees it and he says, God, take this cup from me. And yet what we see after, after pages and pages and books and books in the Bible and story after story of people taking things into their own hands, we see Jesus reversing and cracking the curse of humanity by following that up by saying, take this cup from me. But then he goes, but not my will, but yours be done. And all of a sudden, Jesus erupts on the scene, and all the Bible writers are like, this is why we included what David did. This is why we included what Noah did. This is why we included what Abraham did, to show you that the heroes that you've been following pale in the comparison of the Son of God. And the Son of God doesn't take what is his. He gives it back to God and says, your will be done. And all of a sudden, the curse of humanity is broken in that moment. This is the message of Jesus Christ. So why do the Bible heroes suck in the Bible? Because we see ourselves in the Bible. It gives you an opportunity to not go sleep with somebody else's wife, but to see yourself in David when you're struggling with that temptation and go, God, I submit to your will. Give me your strength. You see in the midst of Abraham the temptation to do something and to accomplish purposes in your timeline, and you, you get the ability to say, no, can I have the strength of Christ reign within me so that I may follow your plan for my life? We see in the midst of the temptation and take out our anger on the people around us that we get to submit that temptation to Christ and not take what we think is ours. What I love is that the book of Romans points to all of this in Romans chapter 3, 23. And hopefully you'll see this verse differently now after this service than you have ever before. Sorry, in verse 22 it starts. It says, this righteousness that we desire is from God. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And in this verse, what we see is that we are no different than Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Bathsheba, Rahab, Esther. We're no different than them all. And that we've been waiting for a savior that can come and break the curse of humanity in our lives. And the great thing is that we're on the other side of it able to receive all the strength and the comfort and the peace and the love and the joy and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. But when we read scripture, we must see ourselves in the midst of it and understand that God is still working his salvation and and his saving power through us even today. Why don't we stand up in this place and band if you would would come. We're just gonna pray. And... uh, if you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow this Jesus, Romans also makes it so clear in saying that um, whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And what does saving mean? Well, the big thing is that you get to spend eternity with Christ, which is really cool. Um, some might describe it as like your ticket into heaven. But Jesus didn't just die on a cross so that you could receive what he did for you on that cross, paid a sinner's death, even though he was a sinless person, a sinless God, um, so that you could just get a ticket into heaven. What this also means is that you will be saved. It means that God will walk with you right here and now. And so with every head bowed and eye closed, just as um, we begin to um, go back into worship, I just want to ask this question. If you're here today, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. 
I'm not going to point anybody out, but I want to know who I'm praying for. If you've never made a decision to follow him, but you realize that the same pattern is working itself out in your life where there's just destruction and temptation and you're weak and you feel like you don't know what to do, but you, maybe this morning as, as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit is actually convicting you and, and, and drawing you closer and closer to God. That's you today, and you're going, you know what? I want to make a decision to follow Jesus. I want to set the compass of my life in the direction of God. I want to make a decision today whom I will serve. If you're here today and you want to make a decision to follow Jesus with every head bowed and eye closed, I just ask right now that you just raise a hand. I'm just going to include you in a prayer. I'm not going to point anybody up, but if you're just going, hey, I'll, I want to make this decision. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to live in this state any longer. If that's you, can you just raise a hand? to pray. Jesus, I pray for anyone that's making a decision to follow you right now, that God, they would just be um, filled with your peace and your presence right now. As we close the service, they would know that they are not far from you, but in making this decision, your Holy Spirit comes in and begins to um, encourage and begins to speak to us and begins to give us all that we need on this side of eternity. And God, I pray that they would be um, certain of the salvation that they can find in you. God, we, we, thank, uh, we thank you for them. We thank you for this decision they're making. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes in. Pray all this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Come on, can we celebrate those who are making a decision to follow Jesus? And before we go into worship, I just want to ask one more, those of us in the room right now, and, and maybe for you, it's, it's that seeing and taking. In fact, this is what I pray, want to pray for right now. But maybe there's these like little sin and these sins in your life. Or maybe there's these moments of temptation. You just feel like you're giving in. And you feel like you're doing the seeing and taking. And, and you can cast judgment for the Bible characters. Maybe you can cast judgment, judgment for your neighbors or those that you uh, go to church with and all the rest. And you can point at them in all the things that they're doing wrong. Yet as... As, as I'm speaking this morning, God's like kind of convicting you of that seeing and the taking that's been taking place in your life. And maybe this morning, it's just time to once again, lay it down in front of Christ and say, God, I don't have the strength to wear, wear all of this temptation myself. I don't have the strength to reject this temptation. I don't have the strength to reject reject this desire. I need your strength. I need your peace. I need the power of your Holy Spirit within me. So again, with every head bowed and eye closed, if that's you, can you just raise a hand right now as we begin to pray? Just go, hey, I, I, need, I need God to help me in the midst of this struggle. Whatever that struggle might be for you. Yeah, all across this room. All across this room, hands are raised. My hand's raised as well because I'm not flawless. I'm like these heroes in the Bible. Well, I'm not a hero, but I'm like these characters in the Bible that just like suck at times. And I think mean thoughts towards people and I, and I desire things that aren't mine to desire and I try to force God's hand when I'm not supposed to force it and I'm, apathetic when I shouldn't be apathetic. So again, if that's you, why don't you just raise a hand and just submit yourself before Christ right now. It's an opportunity for any one of us with sin in our lives to go, you know what? God, I need your strength. I need your Holy Spirit. God, as we begin to pray and, and worship you once again, God, we just wanna, we just wanna thank you for your goodness and your salvation. God, in a moment like this, as we look through all of Scripture, what we see is that the entirety of Scripture and the entirety of creation is pointing to you. And by pointing to you, we learn this beautiful lesson is that, God, you will go to such great lengths to reveal your love and to reveal your salvation to your creation. 
And God, as we raise our hands in this place right now, it's just a small symbol of, of, of the sin that sometimes so easily entangles us that we're just wanting to place back at your feet and say, God, I need your strength. God, I need the strength that you exhibited in the garden when the toughest challenge, challenge was before you, not taking things into your own will. You submitted yourself to the will of the Father. And God, right now, we are praying for the strength that you exhibited to be able to submit ourselves to the will of the Father. And God, we pray through that, that there would be blessing and joy and, and favor and peace in your presence. And that, God, we might go out of this place forever changed, even in a moment, because we decided once again to submit ourselves and to humble ourselves at your feet. So God, right now, we ask for your strength, we ask for your peace, we ask for your presence, but we also turn back and we just choose to worship you. In Jesus' name. As we begin to worship, why don't we just take these last 10 minutes that we have and just begin to ascribe to God his worth. Worship means to ascribe to God his worth. And I walked in kind of in a huff myself this morning because I had just gotten here on time. And, and uh, it can be tempting to walk into a place like this and forget that, hey, all of service is not a warm up to this moment, but don't allow this moment to still pass without experiencing the love of God in your life as well. So why don't we just put ourselves in a posture of surrender right now as we begin to sing. Just begin to worship Him. Thanks again for listening to our Sunday podcast. To hear more messages like these, be sure to share and subscribe. We're thankful for all that God is doing in our church right now. We would love to have you be a part of what is going on. You can connect with us by filling out a connect card online at slatechurch.com. And hey, stay tuned for more content coming soon.